Well, hello there and uh, welcome to uh, yet another episode of uh, GUcast. Uh, my name is Declan Murphy, urologist here at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. And I'm joined as ever by my co-host, uh, Dr. Renu Epen, also a urologist uh, here at uh, Peter Mac. Uh, hello, Renu. Hey, Declan. Great to be back and, uh, and really looking forward to our podcast for today. Yes, I am. Um, and we're also joined again uh, by another one of our GU Oncology colleagues here at Peter Mac, uh, Dr. Ben Tran. Uh, ben, who uh, has been with us before, he's a medical oncologist, leads our uh, GU trials team here at Peter Mac, and he has a particular interest in uh, bladder and uh, testis cancer. Hello, Ben, and uh, welcome back. Welcome Thank back, you. Ben. Uh, when do I get my frequent flies card? <laughs> <laughs> one more. <laughs> One more and then you're good to go. And today um, we are continuing with our theme of the management of GU cancers during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, Very topical, of course. And we've already had some fantastic discussions with um, our friends in Milan, London, San Francisco, uh, those being Alberto Briganti, Ben Chalicum and Seema Porton uh, regarding prostate, kidney and bladder cancers. And uh, today um, we're crossing to Canada to focus on testis cancer. And I'm going to switch back to Ben and ask you, Ben, to introduce our guest today. Well, thanks, Declan. It gives me great pleasure to introduce friend and collaborator, uh, Dr. Robert Hamilton, who's a urologist at Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto, Canada. Robert's been around the world. I didn't realise, Rob, you've been at Chapel Hill, Duke and Memorial before coming back to Toronto to uh, take over from Jewett in some some in some respects regarding the testes program there. Is that, is that fair to say? Uh, yes, no, that's exactly right. And th- thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Welcome, Rob. So I thought we'd just start and figure out how life is in Toronto at the moment amongst this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, well, I, I'm, it's, I'm sure it's very similar to many places around the world as we all go through this together. So it's, uh, we, you know, we were discussing just offline that we, we haven't quite had this, the surge that our colleagues south of the border have or some of our uh, countries in, in Europe, uh, but we certainly have more cases than you have in Australia there. You've been very effective at flattening the curve. We're starting to see the curve flatten here, but um, you know I don't think we've quite achieved the same flattening that you guys have. So we are still very much in in COVID mode here, and it's affected much of the way that we we practice. And and we can talk about that more in detail. But you know we still very much are, are influenced by this here. One of the things that confronted me most in the past couple of months was uh, we had to formulate a, a document um, regarding how we triage treatments for cancer patients in the circumstance that our resources were down um, or if more health workers were unwell or if there was a real lockdown on patients being able to attend hospital. Has that, at the moment in Toronto, has it impacted your ability to do surgery? So we, like, like you, we have also had at the Ontario, at the provincial level, we had, uh, we have guidelines that have come forth to look at all aspects of cancer care. So radiotherapy, chemotherapy, and surgery uh, in the event that we have a surge. Now we have taken a very proactive stance, not only in Canada, but in Ontario and have effectively implemented many of those guidelines. We, we, I can't remember the exact date, but mid-March effectively stopped all elective cancer surgery uh, and and non-emergent non-oncology surgery. Um, we allowed a trickling of the very high priority life or limb uh, uh, surgeries. And now we're allowing a bit more sort of what we call an Ontario priority one, priority two cases to come through uh, on the cancer front, but it's still vastly diminished numbers uh, surgically compared to what we would normally do. So does that include prostatectomies? 
Yeah, so interesting. So a lot of what we'll talk about today is is testis cancer, which is uh, fortunately preserved in the eyes of the priority list. Prostate cancer, however, is not. Uh, and uh, for lots of reasons, not the least of which is we have uh, systemic therapy uh, options to delay our, our window of cure. But uh, unless you have Gleasonator higher disease, uh, it, you're not even able to be considered for surgical intervention at the current moment, at least as the current state in Ontario. Now there's some wiggle room the hospitals can make their own decisions, so I'm not sure how things are in, in, in the individual uh, cities across Ontario, but there is a provincial document that, that says essentially, certainly everything under Gleason 8 not to be operated on at the moment, and then Gleason 8 or higher is in the pool of consideration, but relative to the other cancers, the big renal tumors, the IVC thrombuses, the uh, RPLNDs for testis cancer, they, prostate cancer ranks much lower on that list. And Rob, can I just ask, are you centralising these the, the locations where these surgeries are happening? For instance, are you, are you declaring some hospitals to be COVID hospitals and, and uh, making maybe the bigger centres uh, dedicated to the, to the urgent cancer work? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, well, we have, that has been discussed uh, at the provincial roundtables, but that has not been enacted as yet. Um, I suppose if, if we see a bigger surge than we've seen, we may have to do that, but for now, that has not been the case. Right. And what about your research activities? Yeah, so um, all clinical trials, unless they're absolutely essential to the, the clinical management of, of patients, all clinical trials have basically stopped cold. Uh, wet lab research has stopped cold. Uh, many of the labs have converted their activities or a large portion of their activities actually to COVID research at the University Health Network. Uh, now, their dry lab and database-based uh, research still can continue. Everyone's working from home, so there's still continuation of that. You know, my, my research crosses into several of those domains, so some aspects uh, of it are able to continue, especially all the database uh, research and, um, you know, post hoc analyses of data that we've already accrued. That's all still been ongoing. We have meetings with, with our group, but, um, you know, all the new uh, trial accrual has all been put on hold, unfortunately. Yeah. So Rob, with less surgery happening, are you spending a little bit more time working from home or do you come in each day as usual? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely been a component of working from home and I'm, I'm sure I'm not uh, unique like many uh, clinicians that may be listening to this. You know, I do a lot more childcare uh, with, with schools and daycares closed. So my wife's an uh, emergency department physician. So her shifts have not changed in any way. And in fact, you know, the acuity of her shifts has increased. And so um, we basically trade off childcare and working. And I'm sure that I'm, I'm saying this because it's not unique to our listeners. I'm sure many people are in the same boat. Uh, so I, yeah, I do not go in as much because I don't have the elective surgery list that I used to. And my cystoscopy uh, list has been drastically diminished as well. And so, um, you know, the times that I'm not in, I'm home uh, I'm doing a lot more childcare, which is, which is good and bad, right? Yeah. It must be stressful though too. with your wife being an emergency physician and, and really right on the front line. Yeah, so we definitely went through some anxious first weeks as we awaited to see what the curve would look like in Canada when we first started the new cases, watching our colleagues in New York, especially to our immediate yeah. south. And uh, so there are definitely a few anxious weeks. I think now we settled into a new normal. Um, it looks like Canada is not going to have that uh, truly exponential surge that we saw south of the border. And so we've relaxed and we've all established a new steady state here and uh, everything's business as usual, but uh, it was stressful at first. And tumor boards, are they all virtual at the moment? 
Yeah. So one of the things we did very quickly and I thought we executed very well was uh, immediately uh, within the first few hundred cases as we saw in Ontario, even before that, we rolled over to virtual tumor boards. We already had some infrastructure to do that in Ontario through the Ontario Telemedicine Network. Uh, admittedly, it was a little bit clunky. And so our first week or so was a bit clunky. And now um, we've essentially rolled everything over to Microsoft Teams uh, platform, which I know around the world people are using as well. Um, and it, it, it's been, it's actually been really great. And if anything, attendance has increased because people are able to attend from wherever they are in the hospital. And um, so it's added kind of a new dynamic to, to tumor board. So it's been very effective. Yeah, I was saying to Declan, I haven't enjoyed uh, tumor boards as much as I do now through the virtual virtual. Uh, yeah, you, it seems to have brought you to life. He he normally <laughs> sits in the corner sending me text messages. Why are we discussing small renal masses? Do I have to sit through yet more intermediate risk prostate cancer? You know, and then he, he perks up <laughs> later on when some metastases. Yeah, but he's it's I don't know. He'll probably get bored as he tends to uh, fiddling around. Um, and and uh, I'm interested to hear about Microsoft Teams. Um, by the way, this podcast has no commercial interest in any particular virtual right. platform, but we, yeah. we 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 have been um, sort of battling with with uh, with the organization a little bit on you know which platform should we use and in fact we've got quite a good one um, uh, built into the hospital structure that we no, none of us had really used before but uh, uh, in this fancy new building we have we have a platform called PEX IP which does seem to work pretty well and um, uh, but of course everyone's using Zoom for you know almost everything in life so we have been using Zoom uh, as we are today for a lot of stuff um, and I think wh- whichever of these Microsoft Teams, Zoom all these all these in- environments virtual environments um, uh, will be something that will will persist i think ben after this uh, you, you think you know we're not yeah. going to work the way we used to i think no, i agree just just off topic because i think this is funny have, have you heard about the kids um just typing in random zoom numbers to see what's the most interesting meeting they get into <laughs> that's that's amazing and what, one of them got into like an indonesian cabinet meeting or something yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is terrific isn't it well we yeah we had that so it's interesting not not to get on a tangent but off on a tangent but you know we are not allowed to use zoom and that's one of the reasons is because of this zoom bombing yeah. uh and anytime you have protected health information uh we had our ceo himself wrote us an email and said you know zoom is not permitted for any sort of rounds or discussions involving per, uh, personal health information so so we've actually been explicitly told not to use that and have you been using it to to have drinks with your mates on Friday night, as, as I did for the first time last Friday with my, well, it was my mates in London, so it was like 6am in Melbourne, and they all had a glass in front of them, so, uh, uh, well, the rest is confidential, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I can't say as I've done that yet. Many uh, friends and colleagues have, uh, but I can't say as I've partaken in that as yet. So, look, Rob, as a uh, testis cancer doctor, I uh, am pleased that I'm continuing to be able to treat my patients as I would have otherwise. Uh, and I'm glad to hear the same in Toronto. So everything from orchidectomies to chemotherapy to radiation all the way to post-chemo RPLNDs unchanged for you? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, you know, we're lucky that testis cancer is regarded that way and in part because of its curative nature uh, and in part because of the young patient population that we treat, as you know. So Absolutely. So the, on the surgical side, uh, it's one of the few things that's been allowed to stay going ahead. Um, on the chemotherapy side, they really haven't been that many changes. I, you know, they, they test all the patients prior to initiating chemotherapy for, for COVID status. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, my understanding is they use a lot more GCSF support than they would have uh, in, in days prior to the pandemic. Um, uh, 
there's been, you know, discussions about regimen change and things like that. But for the most part, it's business as usual for Radox, uh, Medox, and, and surgical oncologists for test cancer. I suppose these are mostly fit patients, Ben. It's a little bit different to considering systemic options for bladder cancer, as we did last week uh, with Seema Porton. But yeah. have you changed stuff? I mean, you, you look after a very large number of metastatic patients or salvage metastatic patients. Uh, have you changed what we do? No, for testis cancers, it's it's been the same. We have some patients going in for salvage high-dose chemotherapy and uh, stem cell rescue as well. So at the moment, nothing's changed. Uh, which is great. These patients can have great outcomes if we stick to what we know what works. It's one of the few things that hasn't really changed. And it's a good message for patients because patients listen to these types of podcasts as well. And I think they do need some reassuring messages. One of the interesting things we got involved with here a few days ago, Rob, was with um, ABC, the national broadcaster, did a one of their um, podcasts on declining referrals into the outpatient department uh, everywhere, really. I mean, I, I'm sure this is yeah. the same the world over. Less people are going to see their primary care physician therefore less flow into you know secondary care less flow even into the emergency department the emergency departments are mm-hmm. saying that you know acute urinary retentions are down hematuria you know, all, yeah. so go go figure sort of um well, but even amis amis but i wonder do you think there are young boys out there with testicular lumps who will delay a little bit hopefully they won't but there's a general thing out there that less people are going to get that thing checked out uh, hence, you know, we're seeing drops of very large percentages into all of secondary care. I, I wonder. Are we the last month, the number of patients getting orchidectomies has been as, as per usual. I think um, so. No change um, yeah. across the campuses I work at. That's reassuring, isn't it? I think with a lot of because a lot of GP consultations are now being conducted virtually as well, and so maybe you would think maybe that inability to visually see and examine a testicular lump may lead to a, a decrease in referrals, but it's it's reassuring to know that it hasn't. Yeah, and I, and I would echo that. Uh, we've, we've seen declines in everything else, but the orchiectomy referrals, and when I talk to my colleagues, um, again, maybe it's part because the orchiectomies are still allowed to be to go ahead in the peripheral uh, hospitals because of their priority status. So uh, my sense is the orchiectomy rate in the community is exactly the same as what it was uh, pre-pandemic, but uh, we'll see. It'll, I'm sure that'll be one of the many things analyzed uh, post hoc, yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's preserved. Um, Rob, can I just ask, with RPLNDs, are you doing mainly open or robotic RPLNDs? And what, what can you talk a little bit about what the practice is in Toronto? Yeah, for sure. It's, so I definitely do mostly open RPLND. I'm, I'm yeah. very selective in the robotic cases that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I know, I'm the only one in Canada that's performing robotic RPLND. I know the uptake's been a lot uh, higher in the United States and other parts of the world, but um you know, I'm very selective in how and how we go about doing this, um, and uh, you know, I've I've always been a healthy skeptic in terms of how we've adopted this, and I've always said, well, we're going to start doing this, and if I at any point feel like I'm not offering the same sort of oncological efficacy or functional e- efficacy, then I was going to stop doing it, and and so far we haven't seen that, but uh, I I still am by far a, a higher higher volume open RPLND surgeon than I am robotic. Right. Now, this might bring up, um, I don't know if it's a topic of contention, but wasn't there some talk about robotic surgery or laparoscopic surgery being not a good thing during COVID-19? Was that something that I'd heard from? Gosh, he has yeah. extraordinarily broad reading, doesn't he? Or is it just you saw some tweet about it and you said, oh, park that. I must yeah, yeah, lob yeah. that into some conversation with some urologist sometime. 
Yeah. So, so you're absolutely right that there, there is some suggestion that, uh, I mean, the whole risk of concern is aerosolization and whether that's on the anesthesia side, on the surgical side with, with laparoscopic surgery, insufflating the, the peritoneum. Um, and certainly for, for bowel work or any sort of visceral, visceral entry, there's concern about that. Um, you know, at our place, we've effectively stopped robotic surgery during the pandemic. We, I mean, we've effectively stopped a lot of, of oncologic surgery in general, but the robotic surgery for now has been put on hold. It's not, I don't think it's hammered in stone. Um, you know, our RPLND, and in fact, I do have one robotic RPLND coming up, so we will have to force the issue. That they basically said if we wanted to continue robotic RPLND, we probably could. We have no um, visceral cavity entry in that surgery, at least we hope not. Uh, so that probably will be able to go ahead, but the general consensus is until we get more data that if there's an open alternative to the surgery, you probably should do it for the betterment of the healthcare team that's in the room. I think what we've seen is the initial uh, guidance from SAGES, from uh, the US uh, GI surgeon group, was revised, uh, the one that set the set the worry out there that could there be a risk of aerosolization in general. Um, uh, then they revised it the following week, and then similarly the UK mob revised theirs. And in fact, just in the past couple of days in Australia, uh, the Royal College of Surgeons here had commissioned an urgent um, uh, health technology review from their um, expert technology group have really said that there's no evidence uh, in the you know asymptomatic patient uh, to be concerned and literally the only advice they gave is at the end of procedure um, a desufflation rather than mm-hmm. sort of a celebratory pull all the ports out with a big poof, you know uh, <laughs> chimney effect uh, we should uh, you know turn off the insufflator and ideally uh, deflate the last bit of pneumo through a filter or through an air seal or whatever so I think that, that you know uh, after that initial rash of statements saying oh be careful of aerosolization uh, you know, I think unless this is a, a symptomatic unwell patient, and in fact, we had a, a, a case in, in one of the hospitals nearby here with a symptomatic abdominal pain, appendic- you know, acute appendicitis patient known COVID positive, uh, just back from New York, uh, and they went and did a lap appendicectomy and did a nice video, um, uh, which they posted describing the precautions they took, and it, it all seemed very reasonable. So I think, you know, I think our message is, for example, sw- swapping a nice clean and, endos- you know, robotic surgery for an open surgery with lots of surgical plume etc there's no you know there's no evidence that that's going to be any safer than having a nice controlled yes. uh, surgical environment I, I agree and we test all our our patients for covid status prior to surgery you know the night before their surgery so and i know the sensitivity is not perfect that's the counter argument uh, but i i think i agree with you i think the risk is relatively minimal but uh, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. It's an ever-evolving landscape that one and rob you're testing all patients with a swab a nasopharyngeal swab yes yeah. mm-hmm what about CT? We, we've we've heard quite a bit of these, you know, asymptomatic people wandering around just having a surveillance CT for their follow-up kidney cancer, and there you go, COVID in the lungs. Um, and uh, and when we spoke to Ben Chalicum at Guys last week, he you know he gave us some graphic examples of these surprise COVIDs that you only see on on CT. So one wonders um, if there's a in you know in areas where there's a lot of COVID in the community, um, mm-hmm. and you have a patient who appears asymptomatic and and passes the kind of question test and maybe even a swab test. Is there a role for doing a quick CT uh, before? Yeah, so I, I can't say as I've had an incidental uh, COVID discovery uh, radiographically in my practice, um, uh, but it's bound to happen. And we know the asymptomatic uh, carrier status is, is much higher than we think. Um, so it's bound to happen, um, but that, that has not crossed my doorstep as yet. So, and I haven't seen any guidance, at least uh, locally on that. Mm. Grub. 
Um, one of the things that have ch- has changed uh, for testis cancer here is a shift towards uh, virtual surveillance. So using telehealth mm-hmm. consultations for surveillance, not asking our patients to come in. Um, we're getting scans done peripherally where possible and blood work done peripherally and, and, and reviewing that with patients over uh, a telehealth platform. But you've got a lot of experience with that through your Watchman program. Are you able to describe to our listeners what that's all about and, and how, how it's been going? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And, um, you know, it's been a very interesting aspect of our, our research program here. And so Watchman, as you referred to, Ben, so it's our web-based virtual testicular cancer clinic. And so we innovated, homegrown at our place, innovated this web-based platform uh, for now, just for patients who are stage one testis cancer on surveillance, where we can uh, follow them all online, uh, meaning the patients will go off and do their tumor markers and their imaging as necessary through the system, they let us know they've completed those tests. Uh, we are able to um, access the information either through our own hospital or through provincial registry, uh, review all the imaging, the, the, the marker detail and communicate back to them the status of, you know, has the cancer relapsed or not, and then plan their next uh, surveillance visit. The key is that it's, it's asynchronous, meaning you don't have to have a phone call, you don't have to have a telemedicine interaction. If the patient works night shifts and wants to sleep during the day, if I want to review it on the weekend, you don't have to align in time with okay. the patient. And um, so there are a lot of, <clears throat> excuse me, advantages to that. Um, and so we rolled this out as a randomized controlled trial, one-to-one uh, randomized to either standard in-person care, like we used to for 40 years versus the virtual care. And we've got about 120 patients on the trial now with our planned accrual for 100. 45. That unfortunately, that's one of the trials that had to be put on hold because of COVID. So we had to stop accrual. But uh, so far, the safety data looks very impressive. The patient and the physician satisfaction data look very impressive. And so uh, we were really excited about that. Uh, we still are. Um, but it's interesting how COVID, just as you mentioned, has has forced everyone to adopt some form of, of virtual care for their patients. Now, it's interesting in Canada largely because of how they altered the very quickly altered the remuneration or billing mechanism for virtual care. It's basically all taken the, the shape of phone calls now. And so it'll be very interesting to see in the post COVID era, how our innovation is adopted and disseminated once we complete our trial. Now with the sudden overnight uh, uptake of telephone consults, which before were not remunerated in any way. And now they suddenly were because of COVID. And so we'll, we'll see how, how that changes the landscape in the post-COVID era. It's fantastic, isn't it? Because Ben, we heard some data about this at GUSCO. Yeah. Um, and really, it's been so timely <laughs> to have this trial now. Yeah. It, and, you know, we t- as the pandemic approached Canada, we talked about, you know, is there a way to take what is effectively a research trial with unproven as yet, uh, even though we believe that the results will be yeah. quite positive, but it's a research trial we can't. Is there a way that we can roll everybody on to the Watchman platform? And the answer was no. That's, you know, you're doing a trial for a reason to prove that it's safe and, and efficacious and the patients actually like it, et cetera. And until you have uh, those data in hand, it's not ethical to roll everyone onto our virtual platform. So everything sort of went the way of telephone consults after that. Yeah. Hmm. Declan, did you? 
No, I, th- I think it is fascinating to reflect on how that'll change. But, uh, you know, hats off to Rob. I know it's been one of his particular interests in testis cancer is this telehealth thing. But it's really important that there still is some good high quality evidence to guide this this rapid transition that we're now about to not leave, actually, aren't yeah. we? And um, I think especially measuring um, uh, the patient experience to see what they like. And, and that's going to be very important in how we do this. Uh, we, we'll, we'll just make sure that, I mean, for example, breaking bad news, Ben, this is, we've been reading quite a bit about this, that, okay, everyone is embracing quite a lot of telehealth patients included but there's a particular group of patients and this includes our testis cancer patients who perhaps are getting particularly bad news the ones who are progressing beyond you know maybe your last line of treatment you know so i don't know whether yourself and rob have some comments already about telehealth and breaking like real bad news rob has some data yeah, so I, I can actually, and that was one of our concerns, Declan, when we first innovated the Watchman protocol was, okay, well, if a patient finds out they've relapsed uh, on surveillance and they find that out through the virtual platform, how is that going to go? So that's one of our areas that we survey the patients about. And, and it's interesting, uh, depending on when we've looked at the data, anywhere from 50 to 60% of patients have said they would rather hear about the bad news through the virtual platform than actually through an in-person visit with the physician. So I think that that's at least the young patient population who are so used to getting information through the internet, et cetera, social media, they would rather hear the bad news, have time to have the emotional reaction, do some research about it, and then, and then meet with the clinician to ask their list of questions that they've been able to assemble. So it was interesting, fascinating yeah, for really us. Interesting. It's fascinating, but in some ways it makes a lot of sense, doesn't yeah. it? You know, to, you're in a familiar environment, you're at home, you're, you know, you're in a, a place where you've probably got more support than you would in, a, in an unfamiliar setting in an office. Um, and then you sort of worry about that time and that consultation's over and, and what do you do then? I, I am seeing it on Twitter some some clinicians are saying that no, the breaking bad news thing is a problem, but I think that's a clinician equipoise or training issue. So maybe you know one of our challenges is to see how we as clinicians learn about how to communicate. It's maybe especially the bad news thing, and maybe as you say that that demographic of patients are used to interacting in social media on yeah. platforms and blah blah blah. They may be able to absorb it, but what about the clinician who's never done telehealth and he or she is very used to a traditional environment? And and uh, perhaps one of the pieces of work that comes out is the transition over rec- will require that we do, we educate ourselves on how best to communicate. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think one of the keys is you just have to set the landscape for the patient before they leave to go and get that test. So you say, you know, if it shows X, then we'll do this. If it shows Y, we'll do this. You know, here's what I expect. Here's what it could show. Um, so at least you've laid some fundamental groundwork for that patient when they find the CAT scan result on their, you know, iPhone. Uh, so yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do, but the way forward is. Um, suddenly become very much in front of us because of the COVID pandemic. We have no choice now. I guess one of the most exciting things in testis cancer is the development of microRNA 371, Rob, which you've been very involved in generating data on, and perhaps the the effect of COVID-19 on the two two big studies, the the COG study led by Lindsay Frazier and and the SWOG study led by Craig. Those are on hold at the moment, is my understanding, at least the SWOG one. Yeah, and my, uh, my understanding is that they're both on hold um, to accrual. So it's unfortunate that we'll have to uh, wait for some, some time, further time to see those results. But, you know, the, the microRNA 371 story in, in germ cell tumor is fascinating. And we are just at the tip of the iceberg about how that's going to influence our clinical practice. 
And we've been striving in, in testis cancer for a long time. We've been starving for a biomarker to, to revolutionize what we do and we need one. Yeah. And so it's, it's exciting times. The next sort of three to five years will be absolutely landscape changing for testis cancer because of 371, I anticipate. There was a grant call um, for testes cancers and other reproductive cancers, and uh, we submitted something, at a parallel study to SWOG and the COG studies um, as a third study, Australian led, and to combine the data all together, supported by both Craig and Lindsay. But I'm not sure where that's going to sit now with COVID-19 and, and funding, and we'll, you know, we're supposed to hear in March, and it's now kind of towards the end of April. So we'll see where we stand, but fingers crossed. Yeah. Yeah, no, and and yours is in uh, clinical stage one application, yeah. or is it? Uh, yeah, we we added yeah. a fear so that... of cancer recurrence arm um, uh, to give a, a kind of a quality of life, a patient reported outcome perspective to it too. Yeah, well, that's great. It's been fascinating, hasn't it? But after after being through test uh, for being through prostate and kidney and bladder cancer, it's kind of reassuring to know that with testis cancer, it's business as usual. Yeah. It is. Well, fantastic. And uh, that's all we have uh, time for today on GUCast. I'd like to particularly thank you again, Rob, for taking the time in Toronto uh, to dial into our podcast uh, today. And thank you very much to Ben Tran, uh, your, your previous fellowship colleague from uh, Toronto, for uh, facilitating the discussion today. It's been uh, fascinating uh, as ever. Um, we'll be back again shortly. Uh, you can just search GUCast. Uh, please subscribe and follow us and like us if you like what you hear. If you have topics you want to hear, uh, please do drop us a, a note and we'll try and get to them. Thank you.